Okay. Uh, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. Uh, thank you so much to, for uh, joining us today for our Working in America conversation series. Uh, today we're going to be talking about, has the first job disappeared? Connecting young workers to employers and career-building work experiences. Uh, my name is Maureen Conway. I'm Vice President for Policy Programs here at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of our Economic Opportunities Program. Um, and, uh, you know, in the Working in America series, we talk about a lot of different things around how the world of work is changing and, and the issues related to work and connecting to work. And we're really excited about the conversation today. It's focusing on, on one of the issues we're thinking about, about how do you, how do you get that first job? How do you start a career? And, and how do you start a career and learn on the job? So often when we think about what do, what do young people need to connect to jobs, we think about education and, and training, right? And that's important. But obviously, education and training institutions can't do everything by themselves. And the role of the employer is really important And thinking about how people understand what they're learning on the job and, and really make that, good, that first job a good job that, that is, uh, is the start and the foundation to, to a great career. So that's kind of the, the conversation that we're going to be having today. I also wanted to note that uh, one of the things we'll talk a little bit about today is apprenticeship, and it's National Apprenticeship Week. So... Happy National Apprenticeship Week to everybody. Um, and, uh, and importantly, of course, I also want to thank our uh, funders for this event. We couldn't do it without them. Uh, we are very grateful to the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, the Walmart Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the F.B. Heron Foundation, the Prudent and the Prudential Foundation for their support of this series. We're very grateful to them. Um, a couple of logistical items. Please do silence your phone if you have one, but please do tweet. Our hashtag is TalkGoodJobs. Um, and uh, in today's conversation, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to this very quickly because we have a full conversation and it is in three parts. Um, so we're in the first part. Uh, we're going to have uh, our moderator for the day, Melanie Trotman. Thank you so much, Melanie, for being here, uh, interviewing LaShawn Amato. So thank you, LaShawn, as well, for being here. So we're going to start with this, with, that, with the interview, because we really wanted to get a sense of, you know, have a little bit of a conversation about what is going on for young people in connecting to jobs today. Um, uh, the second part, we have a nice uh, panel of folks to bring some diverse perspective to this. So Melanie will be in conversation with an employer, an economist, uh, somebody who leads a, a program uh, connecting uh, young people to work, and a policy expert. And she will match people to names when we get to that part. Um, uh, if you want a quick peek at who they all are, you have the materials on your seats, um, and, and they came with the materials around the event, so you can take a look at that. And then our third part will be audience uh, questions and answer, so uh, be prepared for that. And also, if you're in the live stream audience, uh, you'll have instructions about how you can tweet or text us questions when we get to that section. Um, so that's our agenda for today, and it's pretty full. So with that, I just want to, uh, again, thank uh, Melanie Trotman of the Wall Street Journal for being here to moderate this conversation and turn it over to Melanie. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for coming. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I think it's an important topic uh, that we're, we're going to talk about before here today. And um, I just want to start with giving you some statistics. Um, from April to July this year, uh, and that's a time when youth uh, employment increases, the number of
16 to 24 year olds working rose by 1.9 million to about 20.5 million people. That's according to the Labor Department. This year, more than half of young people were employed in July, about 53%. And that's about the same as a year earlier. Now, the Labor Department says that the summer labor force participation rate of youth has been fairly steady since July of 2010, and that's after being on the decline for the prior two decades. So that's good news. Um, but does the youth employment rate need to be even higher? Are there steps that employers and others can take to help increase it during summer or throughout the year? Can more be done to increase the even lower employment rates of minority youth? And is there a need to create more quality jobs for youth to prepare them for the future? These are some of the questions that we'll aim to answer today in our discussions. And we'll start by sharing the journey of one adult who works with youth and who had to navigate some obstacles of his own in the job market when he was younger. So I give you LaShawn motto. Um, now I've already had the pleasure of speaking with LaShawn to prepare for our talk. So I'll give a brief introduction um, so that he and I can dive straight into the issues. LaShawn is 27 years old. He lives in the Boston area. He works for a grassroots organization called Opportunity Youth United. And it's a group that's trying to generate increased funding to provide Opportunity Youth a uh, reconnection, a pathway to reconnection, such as getting uh, education and finding work. Uh, the group, which is a sister organization of Youth Build USA, uh, offers what LaShawn calls second chance programs for youth. Some of the services uh, include career counseling to young people and leadership development. LaShawn is originally from the Boston area. He grew up in Brockton. He went to Boston area public schools. And he shared that he had limited resources as a youth. He had some rocky times. He had some run-ins with the law as a teen that put him on probation and left him with a record. And that led to a rough start in the employment market uh, as a young adult. But the good news is that he was able to get on track. He was able to turn it around with the help of some people and programs that really inspired him. And uh, what I want to do now is, is walk him and walk you through key parts of his journey so that you can hopefully learn something instructive from it. So LaShawn, what was your environment like growing up? Uh, how did it shape your goals? One thing you told me was that people would tell you to go to college, but no one explained what that entailed or what that looked like for you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I heard you mention that I had a best start um, in employment, but I would argue that I had a bad start in life. Um, and that's why we like to empower our young people um, and let them know that they're born into poverty and it's not their fault, right? Because my foundation was shooken before I was even born. When I was born, my father was locked up. So my earliest memories of my father was talking through a phone um, in this, you know, in a jail cell. Um, and that left my mother to raise me on her own. Uh, and I grew up in, this, uh, in the city of Boston, which if I were to describe my community, I would just say, just think of everything you wouldn't want your, girl, your kids growing up in. Uh, substance, substance abuse, violence, dropout factories, sorry. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, and it was hard to identify those role models. It was hard to identify those leaders. My mother and a few of my family members would say, you know, you should go to college and make a lot of money. Uh, but Having a motive to make a lot of money is not what it takes to get people to want to go and persist through college. There was no one that really showed me this is what it looks like. Uh, so, 
you know, my, my family survived, and I've seen that, and I've seen them settle for uh, these blue-collar jobs. Most of my family members were in the union, or they worked for the transit system in the city. And we're in a low-income community like Boston. Those are sort of the, the golden jobs, right? I'm in the union, or I work for the MBTA. Uh, and it's funny because I entered the lottery for the MBTA, and I actually got accepted. I passed the test, I uh, went through a series of rounds of tests and evaluations, and then at the end, they denied me because of my criminal record. Uh, and despite the fact that I got letters of recommendations from my probation officer, executive directors of local and national nonprofits, and have so many people vouching for me, they still turned me down. Uh, and that ended up being a blessing in disguise, uh, which I'll explain later. <laughs> Um, you said that you, you, you told me previously that you felt like your school failed you. Uh, tell us how. I would say primarily in middle school, uh, in the Boston Public School System, I went to a school called the, uh, the Lewis. And I can tell you that I remember being at my eighth grade graduation and feeling like I didn't deserve to be there. Uh, and I say that because I've always been a man of integrity, and I didn't feel like I earned it. I didn't feel like I learned it, learned enough, and I didn't feel prepared to go into high school. Uh, and that school, I did everything but learn. I mean, I was running up, up and down the hallways. Uh, there were four people who were sharing books. I couldn't take books home. Um, a few of my classmates actually got... Uh, they died, they were killed close to, to the school. So on top of not feeling safe, on top of not feeling challenged, uh, I disengaged and I became apathetic and that attitude carried over into high school. Right, you said that you, you were disengaged for a couple of years there when you didn't work, uh, you started getting into trouble with the law. What got you on track after that? Uh, to be honest, <laughs> So I was working, you know, doing what I had to do to survive, right? Uh, and then I realized that I had to find a way to legitimize myself, right? Because I would try to find even a basic job. And now I had little small jobs when I was a teenager, a peer mentor, and sort of these youth development um, summer program jobs. Uh, but when I tried to get into the, the actual work um, job market, Walmart, CVS, whatever it may be, I was embarrassed that when it would come to education, I would have to leave it blank. Uh, so that motivated me to, all right, guy, you know, you can but at least get your GED. Um, so th just like that embarrassment sort of nudged me to want to go at least get my GED, and I ended up getting more. <laughs> you know, I think that's a really important point, that embarrassment, because I think it's something, you know, that shame that can discourage people from applying for jobs and, and trying harder. Um, but you didn't. You didn't give up. You you kept you kept moving. You said it took about three months to get your GED. And one thing you told me is that the people at Youth Build, um, you said I trusted them. And I thought that was powerful because I, it seemed to me to be the foundation of what allows you to thrive. And so, just explain to us, please, like why did you trust them? What is it that they did for you? 
I would say, uh, I always start with this story because it's a memorable experience for me. The very first day that I walked into the program, uh, so I learned about the program from a cousin of mine uh, when I was in middle school cutting up. I remember her, who was a female at the time, she would come home with this hard hat and all these tools, and she would just be so happy to go to school, and I would just, just look at her like, what is wrong with you? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, at the time, I couldn't stand going to school, uh, and I just seen the joy that she had. But then I ended up going to her graduation. Uh, I remember it was in Faneuil Hall in Boston, and I seen that she wasn't the only one that had that joy. The entire class had that joy. They were crying. There was tears. I mean, it was just, you could feel the love in the air. Uh, so that, that memory stuck with me when I got to a point where I wanted to find a program, right? And as, as a disconnected youth, when you're disconnected for so long and you're new to a community, I was new to Brockton at the time, you don't know where to begin. You know, so there's a lot of programs in the city. You don't know where they are. Um, they have all these demands of you, fill out this paper. It can become an overwhelming process, especially when you have your mom who was, you know, in charge of, like, handling your doctor's appointments and things like that. So on top of trying to grow up and be my own man, just being confronted with how do I find the right service. So in the midst of my search, I just remember that experience of my cousin, and I knew that there was a youth field in Brockton, so I said, let me give him a shot. Uh, so I went in the very first day just to take a, uh, it was like a sort of like an information, take the tape test, um, you know, the formal process. And when I walked in, he, the, the program manager there, his name was Jay Casilli, big guy, he had a big belly, you know, I'll tell him to his face. So you know, <laughs> after I took the test, you know, he came up to me, he was like, LaShawn Amato, and then he came and gave me this big hug, right? And because he had such a big belly, we were hugging like that. <laughs> and I, I was a little blown away because I was like, what is, you know, what is wrong with this guy? Uh, but that set the tone from the beginning. Usually how things begin is how they end. And I felt, I found that that love carried out throughout the entire program. And then it just come from our program manager because it means a lot when it comes from the leadership, right? Because, you know, everything is a reflection of their leadership. I got that from all the staff. All the staff sort of the mentor. Um, for me and for everyone into that program. Of course, we all had closer relationships with other individuals, but there was an expectation in that program that we are a family um, and we are all gonna support and love each other. Uh, and when you have that trust and support, which means a lot to young people who come from the streets, when you come from the streets, respect is all that, respect and trust are the two most critical things. And once you have that, I was able to be vulnerable and let them guide me in life, right? Because they exposed me to a lot, right? But I allowed them to sort of pull and tug on me because I had that trust. Uh, and, and you had uh, mentioned to me, uh, that they set high goals for you. They pushed you. You said, and you did really well. They also helped you put a resume together. They helped you fill out applications. Um, so those are some really uh, core things that they also taught you to do, in addition to just the support, the emotional support that they provided for you. Um, all very important things. Uh, it sounds like they believed in you mm -hmm. and, and that it empowered you. That's uh, what you have described to me. So after the GED, you took a college summer class. Um, and you enrolled full time in the fall in, mm -hmm. in community college, and you got a job uh, at Price Right. Yes. Supermarket. Mm -hmm. uh, you said you'd build and find that job for you, but they helped you put the resume together and fill out applications. Tell us what went well at that supermarket job. What went well at that supermarket job? Uh, let's talk about how I almost didn't get into it. Uh, <laughs> when you talk about employment and the barriers. So again, on my 18th birthday, October 1st, whatever year that was, I know it was October 1st, because that's my birthday, I was expected to be in court, 
uh, I had a, at the time a two year suspended sentence and I had uh, violated because I was driving without a license because when you get a drug offense in Massachusetts, they automatically take your license away um, regardless of the offense. So talk about barriers. If you can't get to school or work, that's a barrier. So I had a car and I had my license take away from me. So every morning I would, before I would walk to school, especially, on, you know, I live in Boston and days when there's snow, I look in that driveway like, you know, Am I walking or am I going to get in that nice car that I just bought and owned it, you know? So, of course, I drove the car and I got caught and that led me in front of the judge on my birthday. And I remember pleading with my court-appointed lawyer, listen, I'm starting a, I'm starting a job. Um, I just finished this program. I'm about to go into college. And he stopped me before I could finish my sentence. And he said, none of that matters right now. And... I, I, I went downstairs, talked to my probation officer, who ended up being my, my strongest advocate. Um, and we went to the, the courtroom hearing, and because he dismissed the progress that I made, they were literally had Hank, like they had one cuff linked, and then as they were approaching to, to lock the other one, my probation officer came storming out of that, the side door, whispered some things to the judge's ear, who she became my advocate. And next thing you know, they let me free. I was off to go. I was able to go to my first day on the job, and I was able to go um, to, um, start my, my journey at Massasoit. Um, so before I even got there, I still had to overcome that significant hurdle. And again, all because I was trying to get to school. Um, when you did get there, what, just were, what were a few things that were good about the job that you learned from the job? I mean, I, got, I really got to practice the discipline that I got from youth field, right? Um, knowing what it's like to get up on time, to maybe do work that you're not so happy to do, right? So I got to practice that. And because I was so hungry to get a job, and when I finally got it, I mean, I was their best employee. You know, I was there every, I was early. You know, I was putting up the stock. And, it, and I was such a good worker that I was only there for two months and they asked me to be a supervisor. because I was desperate and when I say I was looking for a job, I was looking. I mean, I was, I had a list of over 30. I would mark every time I fill out applications. And mind you, a lot of these retail applications take a long time. These assessments that take 40 minutes, like I put a lot of effort into getting a job and I wasn't getting anything. Um, and I knew why. You know, because they say, be honest, right? And sometimes that doesn't necessarily work. So that one time where I decided to lie, I got in. Um, so they let me in. I don't remember lying on the application. Um, so when they asked me to become a supervisor, they had to do another level of background check. Um, and I was up front at that time. And I told them, and when the results came back, they had found a discrepancy. And the day that I came in, you know, I was excited, thinking I was about to get the great news, and it turned into the worst day of my life at the time, because I was really excited about getting that position. They said, you know, LaShawn, um, we found out that you lied on your application, so not only are we not going to promote you, we have to terminate you. So I went from climbing to unemployed like that. So one of the things that gets at is, um, you know, the Obama administration's push to get employers to be more open-minded about applicants who have uh, criminal records and considering more closely what the offense was and, you know, whether it's even relevant to the job that that person is doing. 
Um, but LaShawn, you did get a second chance. You got a second chance of your own. Uh, and just tell us how. I think it involved Boston Market. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so after the price trade experience, the supermarket experience, I knew moving forward, no matter how desperate I was, that I couldn't lie because it didn't last. Um, so I had an interview for Boston Market, um, and I was nervous going into the interview again because I was like, did I lie on this application? Because, uh, <laughs> you know, when you fill out so many, you don't know, like, when they received it or what's going on. So I went into the interview. Who was calling me, I was there. And what was unique about this interview was she lowered the bar at the very beginning. That was the very first thing that she pointed out. She said, you know, Sean, I see this on your application. Um, I see that but this is just paper. I want, I see potential in you. I see you going to school. I see you going to work. Uh, and she just wanted assurance for me that I would stay on that path and that she made it explicit that she wasn't gonna hold me against that. And while she was not the best supervisor, <laughs> I had nothing but respect for her because she did that for me. Um, and she she was tough, but she set the high expectations. And again, she, she, she was that foot in the door. Um, so I could really respect her for that. Right. And so you attended community college for two years. You graduated. You transferred to a state university, uh, UMass Boston. You got a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Correct. And you were working at Boston Market most of that time. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so you know, today's discussion is focused in part on on the role that employers can play in providing more and better employment opportunities and career building opportunities for young people. What actions would you like to see employers take to accomplish this goal? Uh, I would like to see employers change the culture of their uh, of their corporations or their organizations, whatever you want to call it, because uh, that goes into the policies that they have. Like I said, I couldn't get in because I had this criminal record, right? Um, and there's a few others. There's um, issues of profiling, you know, those type of barriers. Uh, but also, it's about access and opening doors, right? Because um, Opportunity Youth United, one of our biggest, uh, one of our biggest recommendations is to increase the number of private internships, right? And expose these young people to these work environments. Because, like I said, they're growing up. All they see is drug dealers, aspiring athletes. Uh, and people who work for the MBTA of the union, they have a very t limited lens on life. So when you can expose it to these different careers, uh, that sets them up, they're able to get the experience that they need and build their resume so they can become good candidates um, down the line. But a lot of times that access is not there. Um, and then there's, there's barriers as far as opportunity. Okay. Uh, and uh, policy. I mean, uh, what about, you know, what, what are one or two policies uh, or policy changes that you'd like to see to help? young people access good jobs? Uh, so in my experience through youth field, um, I would say that one um, policy change I'd like to see is an expansion of national service because I think that when we talk about violence in communities, and, and because I studied criminal justice, I got to go there. Um, one of the theories of why people commit crime is because they have no sense of self-connection and self-purpose. And again, being new to the Brockton community, I didn't have a connection to that community, so it was easy for me to do whatever I had to do to that community, which was damage, right? But through my service in Brockton, uh, whether it was re re renovating a home for a low-income family or cleaning up the local park, you start to feel pride, you feel a connection, um, 
And then you also don't want to see nobody violating the work that you've just done. You have a sense of ownership. Um, and again, it becomes that much harder to, to proceed and do more damage. Um, but uh, like I said, service opportunities uh, can be a barrier for certain youth, especially those who have court involvement. Okay. And funding, I mean, it, it's something you, you benefited from, from certain types of funding that helps you get through. Yes. Uh, another one of our recommendations is expand pathways to higher education. As you know, even middle class um, families are struggling to pay pay off tuition. And so imagine what it's like for someone living in poverty. And I definitely wasn't paying for it on my Boston market. I would call it a stipend. I wouldn't even call it a wage. Um, so I was I was a recipient of Pell Grants. I mean, that's really what, what got me through. Support through the Pell Grants, support through Youth Field. Um, youth Field supported me through Stoneman Scholarships. Um, even even outside of the program, they continued to support me through that. They, they established an individual development account for me to help pay off some of my, my finances. Um, I mean, I'm still into working nonprofits, so I'm trying to keep the, the numbers down. <laughs> Uh, you said that people who do well end up leaving. You were talking about your community. And there's no one to look up to. So I, I really feel like that was your, kind of your call to the public to, to mentor. Um, if, you, if you grew up in a tough neighborhood and you get out, to come back to help, um, you know, or to be involved. And so I thought that was a, that's a sort of powerful message. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Conversation. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to do a quick change of chairs. And while they do that, I just wanted to uh, mention one thing I forgot to say earlier, which is uh, we were so glad to be working with our colleagues in the Aspen Forum for Community Solutions and bringing you to today's event. And I want to thank them again for introducing us to LaShawn, uh, who you just got to hear speak. So, uh, so I want to give a big shout out to them. And now we're going to get uh, set up for part two. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Good afternoon, panelists. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm just going to go right into it. We have uh, we have here Dr. Paul Harrington. He's the director of, of the Center for Labor Markets and Policy at Drexel University. Uh, next to him is Amy Barrett, the director of strategic initiatives at the Cohen Institute at Tulane University. Next to Amy, we have Keisha Bird. Keisha is the, is the Director of Youth Policy at CLASP. And then we have, uh, we've got Tammy Simmons. Tammy is Vice President of Marketing and Culture for Machine Specialties Incorporated. So, I think I'm gonna start uh, with you, Paul. You've, you've done quite a lot of research on the topic of youth employment and labor market trends over the years. Give us an overview of the major trends that you've been seeing uh, just over the past few decades. Yeah, the, the, the turning point in all this was really in 2000. That was sort of the last full employment year. 
We had very high fractions of kids, teens and young adults engaged in the labor force on average at any point in time. Half the 16 and 19 year old kids, a little bit, actually a little bit more than that, were engaged in the job market. And this is an important thing because this is, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit later, but, but work is a little bit like going to school in the sense it's a human capital building process. So it's important for youngsters to, to get that early, uh, early work experience. What's happened really since uh, 2000 is the job market attachment of teens and young adults has fallen a lot. And as a result, the fraction of teens that have a job has come down a lot as well. You know, in 2000, we had 44, 45% of kids in the U.S. had a job, you know, and that varied a lot by states and localities within states. That fraction today is somewhere around 25, 26, 27%. So it's pretty, it's pretty low. It's almost a half. Uh, the employment rates of kids are about half of what they were. Part of why that's happened is there's been an age twist in the pattern of labor force attachment. And we've seen very rapid increases in the employment rates of people 65 to 74 and 75 and above. And what we see going on here is I did some runs for this talk, and what we see is this tremendous penetration of some of these older workers into traditional teen jobs. So you're finding these youngsters in uh, a very, very, very sharp reductions in the number of teens in cashier jobs, uh, retail sales, uh, uh, you know, stock clerk jobs, you know, all of you had stock clerk jobs working in the grocery stores. Uh, depart, depart, you know, so, so these, these, these kind of, if you take the top 10 teen jobs uh, back in 2000, the number of teens employed in them has fallen by about a, a, about a third. And then when you look at, okay, where have these older workers gone, the employment rates of older workers in these teen jobs have just exploded. So we're seeing, and, and you know, when you go to the grocery store, when you go to the gas station, you know, you see it. You see, you know, you see me uh, packing your, your groceries, right? So, so you're really seeing this tremendous substitution of older workers for teens and even young adults. And part of this has got to do with, I, I think, with basic, you know, risk-averse activity by employers. And part of what's going on there is, is employers, you know, when they were screening, remember, when they're screening, you know, uh, what you're doing is you're trying to hide all your sins. Okay? And what the employer is trying to do is figure out what those sins are. And that's what that interview battle sort of is. And so employers are, are risk minimizers. And so they tend to hire older workers, particularly in zero-skill jobs. Okay? And a lot of the jobs I'm talking about are, are jobs that all of us could go out and do right now. And the reason why they do it as is what they desire is a set of behavioral traits around reliability, around reliability dependability, self-control, and, and around ethical issues. And what's very clear is kids are at the bottom of the labor supply queue on that. And that, so, so what we're seeing is, is under conditions of slack labor markets, which we really have characterized the American economy in the last 16 years, that what's happened is, is that we, uh, firms are in a position where they're able to substitute older workers, particularly 55 and above, uh, for teens and young adults. And that's a lot of the story of, of uh, teen employment in the country. Thank you. Paul, can you just briefly mention the variances of youth employment by race? Yeah, so, so if you take a look at the employment rates of, of, uh, of, uh, of kids by race ethnicity, you know, back in, back in 99, 2000, about 51% of the kids, uh, uh, white kids had a job. But even back then, only about 28% of black kids uh, had jobs for Hispanic, for Asian kids it was about 30. Hispanic kids were much higher, they're about 44%. But you, you, you take that, you know, 15 years later and you see for white kids it went from half to a third. For black kids it went from 28% down to a fifth. Uh, for Asian kids, 29% down to less than a fifth. For Hispanic kids, 44 to 28%. So all the groups have seen this reduction, but the basic race ethnic structure has sort of stayed in place where white kids do a little bit better. 
And underneath that, what you'll see is there's a very close relationship to family income and the chance a kid has a job. And that as family income rises, the probability the kid has a job goes up until you get to the very highest income groups. Okay? And part of that, why that is, is because as the, the connections to the labor market expand a lot, as that family income goes up. And so the connections, the, the, the brokering that goes on to get kids jobs is much better as the income level rises until you get to the top where people live in communities where, like Norfolk, where there are no jobs, so kids work a lot less. Okay. Amy, um, can you give us a quick introduction to the Opportunity Youth Initiatives at Cohen Institute at Absolutely. Tulane? And, and what does it do and, and who does it serve? Sure, yeah. sure. So the mission of the Cowan Institute, which was founded um, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, is to advance public education and youth success in New Orleans and beyond. And when the Institute first started, we were really focused on K-12 initiatives and public policy um, related to our large-scale school reform in New Orleans. Um, and as our work went on, we really saw the issue of youth disconnection to be germane to um, our education reform initiative as we dug deeper into the data in New Orleans and found that over two-thirds of the opportunity youth population in our city actually has a high school diploma or um, equivalency. We really um, you know, recognize that like the national trends, um, more in our community needed to be done to expand uh, pathways to post-secondary into careers. Um, and so we founded our Reconnecting Opportunity Youth Initiatives mm -hmm. about five years ago. Um, and we, we do so to reconnect young New Orleanians um, ages 16 to 24 to education and to career pathways. Um, and we do this in a demand-driven way. We um, work very closely with our economic development entities. We um, have a sector-based strategy um, to really think about the high growth, high demand industries in our city, um, but also very much recognize that um, this is really a, a pathway and that um, jobs along the pathway are really critical to being able to enter into um, a career where um, retention and development and continued advancement are a reality. Um, and so we have really two signature initiatives at the Cowan Institute. One is our Earn and Learn Career Pathways program, which is an apprenticeship program that we started two years ago at Tulane, which is the largest private employer in the city of New Orleans. And I'll talk more about that in, in subsequent questions. Um, but we focus on serving opportunity youth in that program. And then our other initiative, which we um, partner with the, another division of the Aspen Institute on um, quite a bit, is called our Employee Initiative. That's an acronym. Um, that stands for Employment and Mobility Pathways Linked for Opportunity Youth. And that's a cross-sector collaborative in the city of New Orleans that the Cowan Institute serves as the backbone for. Um, we have over 35 organizations that participate, all in the spirit of addressing barriers and reconnecting young people to education and career pathways. And so we have representation from the employment sector, from the city, from um, nonprofit providers and, and policy organizations, um, foundations, and a whole host of organizations. So I'll stop there. Uh, just one quick follow-up. Are you seeing uh, any of the trends that Paul mentioned or any others? Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, 
Absolutely, in terms of um, a decline of opportunities for young people to work, um, and you know some of that um, being kind of led by adults um, filling filling some of those jobs that traditionally young people um, had filled, um, particularly in New Orleans in the hospitality industry. Um, and I can get into this more, but um, you know our part of our program really. A major impetus behind our programs is um, this idea of fostering um, opportunities for young people to work, um, not only because of some of these trends, but also because we really think that there's something valuable about having a youth development lens to on-the-job training as well. Okay. Keisha. Yes. Um, so you're the director of Youth Policy at CLASP, which, which stands for the Center for Law and Social Policy. Uh, you do a lot of research on policies that affect youth employment and programs that improve youth opportunities. From your research, what are you seeing uh, regarding trends in youth unemployment? Yeah, so um, we'll echo a little bit of what um, you know, Dr. Harrington already talked about in terms of uh, the decline, um, mm -hmm. in particular as we think about young people of color. Um, in terms of their attachment to the labor market and in terms of the value of work. And um, we start our work um, in terms of our research and, and really talking to young people, in particular talking to young men of color who are at the, have, have some of the lowest attachment to the labor market. And what we found was that um, lack of having a reference and lack of having those social networks, um, that social capital that um, Paul Harrington mentioned, really impedes on their ability to enter into the labor market. And so um, from our work, um, we're a public policy organization. And so um, while we're, while we're um, kind of dealing with the shifts and who's attached to these low-wage jobs or entry-level jobs, and while we're dealing with the shifts of private sector employers stepping up, which we have seen as a trend that they have been stepping up, um, there's a role for uh, subsidized employment strategies. There's a role for investments at the federal, state, local level. Um, most importantly, what we've seen since there has been a, a divestment of federal uh, uh, support, employment, and training for young people in particular uh, is that communities are stepping up, and communities, uh, communities are stepping up in a couple of ways. We see lots of summer youth employment experiences, and we know those are limited, and that is not enough, but it is a start in, in terms of uh, uh, helping young people to get those kinds of uh, uh, early work skills. I've heard from lots of other people, power skills, which is dependability, self-control, um, you know, uh, different cognitive decision-making that, that we all learn on the job. Um, and I already mentioned that private sector is stepping up, in particular, in the opportunity youth space and um, moving some of their work from corporate social responsibility working with young people to actually um, into their business side in the bottom line um, and changing some of their hiring practices. Um, I'll end, because I know we'll get into this, um, some other questions, is that we have a number of strategies um, that we see are important and are effective in making sure young people get on a path and stay on a path into a career ladder. So I know we'll talk about those yeah. in the future. So Tammy, uh, speaking of the private sector, mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about your company, Machine Specialties Inc. Yeah. Just location, the industry, uh, what the company makes, how many people work there, and also what trends you've seen over the years from an employer perspective. Okay. Yeah. So Machine Specialties is located in Greensboro, North Carolina. We're considered a small company. We have 150 employees. We are an advanced manufacturer. 
we make anything that's hard to make out of metal. So we'll make parts for the helicopter, medical industry. We have surgical instruments, hip and knee replacement parts. We make the full up landing gears for the F-16s and the B-1B bombers. We actually have parts on the space station and the Mars rover. Um, so that's a little bit about our company. And what we're seeing is in trends of recruiting younger applicants is that they're not going into the jobs that we offer. Um, many of our employers in our county uh, are suffering from the same. We are the largest advanced manufacturer in our county of North Carolina, Guilford County. And they're just not going into the skilled positions that we have, that we have um, for them. They're very highly paid, they're very highly skilled, and they're very highly in demand. Um, but that trend, I think all of us um, have moved children to think that um, the path to success is the four-year degree. And um, a lot of um, really key jobs are being left out and not looked at um, for success for, for the students. Um, what are you looking for in an entry-level worker? So um, an entry-level person, um, our apprenticeship program is, is recruiting um, okay. students. And so um, we're going into the high schools for juniors and seniors that um, maybe show some interest in mechanical ability, um, like to work with their hands. We're targeting the CTE courses that are offered. Um, and we look at attendance, um, you know, some of those things that are, that are factoring into our decision. Most of the jobs that we require, that we're trying to fill from an employer standpoint, require good math skills. So we look at the math one, two, and three classes and um, see how well they did that in that. And um, mm -hmm. even if they didn't do so well in English or history, we might overlook that as long as they've got some, some math skills. Okay, thank you. So this is a great segue to our next section um, about how to help young workers access jobs and build early work experience. So uh, Amy, I'm gonna start with you. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your Earn and Learn program, just how it's structured, what are the, what are the partners, or who are your partners, rather, and what, the, what are their roles? Absolutely. Um, so the, our Earn and Learn program at Tulane <laughs> is a year-long program for young people um, in the Opportunity Youth um, age range. Um, and we, it's, it's a full-time program, so it's 40 hours a week. It's structured such that young people are in a paid apprenticeship um, in one of two high-growth, high-demand sectors regionally. Um, those are IT and also what we call um, in our region skilled crafts, so that includes advanced manufacturing, but also um, many of the petrochemical jobs that are um, really in demand in our region. Um, and young people are working in departments at Tulane, again, the largest private employer in our community. Um, and so for 15 hours a week, they are overseen by a supervisor in one of those departments whom we work very closely with. Um, they are um, kind of meeting milestones progressively throughout the year um, that we have set up in advance um, in order to really, after the year, leave that apprenticeship um, poised and ready for the next um, job or you know a set of, of next types of jobs along um, their chosen career pathway. Um, and then to for the remainder of their 40-hour um, week with us, we um, are doing one-on-one -on -one coaching, um, which is mandatory. We um, require that um, our participants attend social-emotional um, learning and soft skills classes with us. Um, 
We also um, require a post-secondary um, element. We have partnerships with our local community college and also um, Bard College out of New York um, has a network of, of early colleges throughout the country, um, one of which is in New Orleans, and they've expanded um, their programs to serve opportunity youth, and so we partner with them to do critical thinking, reading, and writing um, courses um, throughout, throughout our year. Um, and, um, and then also um, young people are in what we call personalized learning time. So that's really group settings and that can vary from um, small group counseling to um, honing math skills um, to a range of other things. Do you want to just quickly share a success or challenge you know, that you've had to overcome and um, whether or not you've had to fine tune things a bit to you know, to improve the program, maybe in a way that could be instructive for sure. our audience? Sure. Um, we've had to fine tune the program every day, every week. Um, I think that's what being responsive and, um, you know, doing this work and learning from it is, is all about. Um, I think that success um, looks like a number of things. Um, the Primary two entities um, or, or stakeholder groups that we serve are, of course, the young people that we work with, but then also um, our employer partners. And so we really pay attention to um, our employer partners' satisfaction, their struggles, um, and we have had to innovate quite a bit around that in terms of um, really helping Tulane supervisors um, develop high-quality professional development um, systems and programs just for themselves, which um, they have really um, said have, have improved their systems overall, kind of their um, HR overall, um, that you know, the work that we do to coach supervisors in how to communicate across difference, um, how to deliver feedback effectively, um, how to hold people accountable has not just benefited um, our, our apprentices, but also um, employees in their entire departments. Um, so that's something that we have really had to be responsive to is those needs, but I think has also been a great success. Um, you know, success also looks like our retention numbers and obviously what people are doing um, in terms of matriculation after the program. Um, and so, you know, our goal for um, retention is 80%. In our first year, we exceeded that. This year, we're just shy of that, but we're really proud of, of that. Um, in our first year, in terms of matriculation, um, as of six months after the program, we had um, over 60% of our graduates enrolled um, and persisting through their pathways. We would like it to be um, much higher than that, but we feel for, a first, for our first year, um, you know, a tremendous amount of um, excitement about that, but a real desire to continue to build um, alumni supports and post-hire supports. And what, what's the age range of, of the mm -hmm. um, apprentices? So we, um, we generally define um, opportunity youth in the age range in line with uh, the Aspen Institute, um, 16 to 24. Okay. Um, however, for this program, it's 18 to 24 because of um, Tulane's right. Regulations. Okay. Regulations. Tammy, uh, please tell us about the apprenticeship program at your company. Uh, when and why did you get involved in, in the approach, in that approach, um, and how is it structured? Okay, so um, it's called Guilford Apprenticeship Partners, 
and it's employers that come together and um, have united to kind of gain some buying power. Um, you know, we are going into the schools, at the, we look at our schools as our pool of, of applicants and, and prospective new job, uh, new job holders for us. So um, we've decided that, you know, we can get further if, if we partner together. So there's now 10 employers in our group and it's structured where we recruit juniors and seniors. They're given free college tuition, which includes the books, tools, and any fees that they have. We pay for that. It's a three and a half year program. They're also paid for on-the-job training. It's um, 6,400 hours of on-the-job training that they're paid from, from the, right from the beginning, and 1,600 hours of college education. So at the end of the three and a half years, they have a two-year degree, they have um, a journeyman certificate that's recognized in all 50 states in that skill or trade that they're in. They have zero college debt, and they're guaranteed a job. Okay. Um, positive outcomes for your company or you know, challenges you've experienced uh, that have required you to kind of tweak the program? So, so really, when we heard about this, um, we modeled the program after um, Apprenticeship 2000, which is in our state, and it's been operating for 18 years. And um, of course, you know, as an employer, I was looking for the benefit of, of this. I have a challenge of, of hiring these skilled employees, and this could be, you know, the thinking outside the box, creative way of, of getting them into into our um, in system. And when I went back and I told our president, because I was sold hook, line, and sinker, that this was the way we needed to go, even though we had hired very little of high school students in the past. Um, the question was asked by our model, do you make them sign a, um, an, an agreement that they stay with you afterwards? And the answer was no. So I thought that I might not be able to sell this to our president because he won't get a return on his investment. We're, you know, we're spending, it equates to about $120,000 scholarship opportunity. If you look at the wages that they're gonna receive, the benefits that they receive, company benefits, um, just like any other employee would, and the college tuition over the three and a half year program. And um, his response was, um, we need to do it for ourselves, but even if one of these students leaves us, we've brought that skill into our community and they're staying in our community. And maybe if my neighbor company down the road does the same thing, then, you know, then maybe in turn I'll get one of his. So, um, so it not only has it been um, for our own personal capacity growth, but it's been a great thing for the community and then it's also been a great thing for the students. Um, I recall the first day of class at our community college and I, I wanted to, to get in there before everyone got started and talked to um, the, the teacher, kind of like a little mama bird. And I go in 40 minutes early, and there's already some students sitting at the table with their hands crossed. And I'm like, what you, what's up, guys? You're really early. Are you excited? And one of them just shook his head and said, I never thought I'd had the opportunity to go to college. And the other one said, I never saw myself here either. Mm -hmm. So the opportunity for the student, um, you know, they, they're getting their college paid for, they have money coming into their family, into their community right away. Um, and it's good money, it's, you know, it's above, it's above the minimum wage, um, is, is tremendous. Thank you. So Paul, uh, in addition to the apprenticeship earn and learn model, uh, what other successful or promising approaches, you know, do you, do you see out there to helping young people? Yeah, I, I think the piece that's missing here is high schools. Um, high schools in, in the U.S. have mostly become one-trick ponies. Um, they just have a sort of a college-bound system. I just completed a follow-up of about 10,000 kids who graduated out of the Philadelphia Public Schools. I tracked them over seven years uh, after, they, after they graduated from high school. And Philadelphia schools are stri strictly college prep. 
and um, and basically one out of five of those kids will actually end up getting a degree or certificate. And certificate, I'm talking about beauticians, or they don't have a high criteria. So it means 80% of the time we miss. An economic return to getting no degree or certificate is zero. You get nothing. So, you know, we've kind of got a bad high school strategy out there, think in many ways. And one of the simplest things I think high schools can do is build relationships with local employers. You know, we've heard, you know, this panel talk, you know, that's a lot of what they're looking for. They, they, you know, you, you listen to LaShawn, I mean, how did he get his job? And the answer is, somebody stepped in and brokered him in. Mm -hmm. Somebody certified him. And so, for a lot, so, so every employer is trying to look, minimize risk. And the way you minimize risk is you get a third party to say, that's a good kid. They'll show up, they'll keep the nose clean, they'll be okay for you. And because what employers at these entry-level jobs are looking for are not uh, uh, strong proficiencies, looking for strong behaviors and social skills, ability, you know, you got a little bit of that. Uh, you know, but the ability to kind of interact and be persuasive and, and those sorts of things. And so that's really, I think, and, and high schools, I think, have sort of missed the boat in that. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm interested, in, you know, but, but maybe to what extent you're dealing, you know, both of you are dealing with the, the career tech mm -hmm. side of things, because mm -hmm. that seems like a very promising area mm -hmm. uh, to me. And I think I was, I was trying to figure out where, you, where your cousin went to high school. Did she go to the career tech school down there? In the regional school, or did she go to Brockton High? No, 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 my cousin went to Youth Build in Boston. Oh, Youth Build, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Keisha, similar question. What models or approaches have you seen work uh, work well, you know, to help today's youth? Yeah, yeah. so um, just really building on what LaShawn started about, mm -hmm. uh, talking about is that many of our young people, especially our young people um, of color who have over-attachment to the justice system for a number of different reasons, pushed in over policing and so forth, and that's one of the things we look at is really being able to have someone who steps in and broker. And one of the things that we've seen in terms of community stepping up is um, not not just the workforce system being integral into brokering the relationships, but also um, this idea of this core model. Um, and would like to see more, most, most of us know about youth build, but there are a number of cities, including Philadelphia, including Hartford, are thinking about how do you use national service, civic engagement, as a tool um, to one, get young people back into loop and do those early work skills because their, their employers may not be there, they may not be ready for the kind of private sector employment that we're talking about here today, but nevertheless, they need to be able to have that uh, uh, early work experience to gain those skills. And so um, we're seeing a lot of, a lot of models on the, on the, on the uh, core side, but the other piece I mentioned in the schools is how do you make sure um, that, for example, young people who are attached to school already, young people who are um, younger and early teens, have the opportunity to have those kind of early work skills, high schools, in, in throughout the year. And so a number of communities have been doing uh, competencies, employment competencies, working with employers, but also using high school credit that that is a central part of what high schools should be doing. And so we see it's really creating a system for young people who are already attached, who are but marginally attached to school and opportunity. But really, if we really want to get at who's the future workforce of our country, we have to really be focused on young men and women of color. And we have to make sure that when they have those obstacles, like LaShawn mentioned in his own experience, that we broker those deals and provide access. And we hopefully have private employers who can do that, who change their hiring practices, but if they don't, then we need to have coalitions and things like the Aspen work that you're doing to be able to do that for the young people. Okay, thank you. So we're going to move on to our next section on you know thoughts about creating a quality job experience. 
Um, you know, we've all heard the phrase quality over quantity. Uh, and thinking about jobs, many people stop at unemployment, uh, the unemployment rate, which is basically the binary measure of whether a person has a job or not. But we're learning more and more about quality jobs and how much they matter. And uh, we're going to explore that a little bit now. I'm going to start with you, Paul. Uh, what are your thoughts on what makes for a good job for a young person? What defines a quality work experience versus a basic one? I, I think every kid needs a basic work experience. I think okay. that, that there's a set of building blocks that kids need to develop. Mm -hmm. So I don't score a kid working at McDonald's. I think mm -hmm. quite the contrary, that's a great place uh, for young people to start. And the question is, is how do you build a mobility pathway you know, for that kid? And that probably does mean mixing work and school and mixing some other kind of educational activity. Maybe not schooling, maybe an apprenticeship program. There's lots of different ways you can learn, pick up a particular field of knowledge, maybe through you know, upper mobility in that company. But, but the payoffs to work experience, even the lowest level of work experience, is much greater than idleness. Idleness is the great sin for young kids. If you don't have early work experience, it really hampers your abilities not only to succeed in the labor market, and we also find that it has very adverse effects on post-secondary outcomes uh, as well. So getting a kid a job, both while they're in school and in summer jobs, and especially if you can do it in the private sector, has pretty high economic return. So I'm, I'm, I worry less about quality jobs, having had some really bad jobs myself. Okay. Um, when you look at and think about the programs um, designed to connect young people to jobs across the country, how well do you think they're doing? I, I mean, I, 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 I think that, that the youth programs actually are pretty good mm -hmm. um, because I think most of them have that brokering function. Because okay. what firms are trying, firms are just risk averse. Okay, they just, they, so they'll hire an old guy versus a young guy, not because they, they uh, 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 have figured out a good, a good personnel system, they're just using kind of stereotypes, you know, heuristic rules to kind of figure out this guy's less risk than the younger guy. So having a third party, you know, voucher somebody, broker somebody and build a relationship and that relationship be built on a long-term connection. You know, that this is not the only kid I'm going to send you. I'm going to keep coming back to you. And if you have a problem with that kid, I'm going to step in. And if you can do that, you'll get great success. And I think a lot of youth programs have actually figured that out. Second thing that they're really good at, and I think this is one of the things you're doing in your program in, in, uh, in uh, what town are you from? Greensboro. Yeah, Greensboro. That one of the things you do is, is, is one of the great, most effective thing employment training programs do is they actually act as good screening devices. You know, you put someone through a 12-week 12, 12 uh, uh, machine trade, a welding program, the kid shows up every day, keeps their nose clean, you know, they're working eight hours a day, they seem to learn. That's a terrific screening device for an employer to figure out, wow, I can bring this kid into my shop, they're not going to chop their fingers off, and they're going to show up every day. This is a good kid for me to bet on, and maybe has a little mechanical ability. So I think we've actually figured some of the, some of the, some of the issues out. You know, the question, and, and, you know, and the question is, is how do we organize? And right now, the only groups I see organizing are really mayors. That the mayor seemed to be the kind of the primary organization supporting youth employment, but not much else. Okay, Keisha, uh, what do you think are some key principles, uh, you know, important for any approach in helping young people gain quality experience? Yeah, so I, I'm in agreement of um, that any job in the beginning to gain work experience is is uh, going to give our young people a leg up and having progressive work experience. One of the things, again, mayors are stepping up, but resources are limited. And so in a place, um, let's just say New York City, for example, where they have a large-scale summer youth employment program, it's a lottery system. And so there's no guarantee that the young person will be able to get a progressive experience. And so um, we're, youth programs are doing a good job, but then there's just not enough of those um, opportunities for, for 
another demand that is out there and the need that is out there. Um, so um, that's one thing. The second thing is um, meeting young people where they are and understanding, especially when we're talking about low-income young people are coming from high-poverty neighborhoods, that just work is not enough. And so wrapping around youth development principles, principles around civic engagement. And one of the things we're really looking at is understanding the just sheer toxic stress and environment young people are navigating and have thrived, and, have, and despite of that are thriving and surviving. And so um, to stay on track, to do some of the great things that you are doing, um, showing up, and as you were saying, keeping your nose clean, um, requires for that, uh, that community-based organization or that other entity to be able to provide those social-emotional supports that are really needed. And, um, and mental health is something that has uh, surfaced as a high priority of the communities that we work with who are very engaged in education and training, um, but 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 want to but aren't able to keep the young people on track for a number of things. And then the, the third thing I'll mention is not being beholden to funding streams that want to see results um, in an annual basis. And so really um, having a long-term strategy, a long outlook, and sometimes that's difficult with our public funding streams. And so having a private sector there or, or a, a charge to the philanthropic sector is how do you push the envelope? Um, because uh, when we looked at data of many of the communities we work with, um, it there's no silver bullet. There were progressive experiences over time. And for an uh, opportunity youth, someone who wasn't attached to school or work and didn't have a credential, it was a probably about 18 months to two years to, to a full unsubsidized employment placement. And so really being able to um, be there for the long haul and meet young people where they are. Amy, um, how does your program focus on providing good jobs for youth? Yep, so um, to reiterate a couple of the points um, that um, the other panelists have made, um, part of what our program does is we really try to um, take this, again, pathway approach. Um, many of the young people who um, are very successful in our program um, have had um, another jo job before. So, um, you know, whether it's again in hospitality or um, construction or a number of other fields, um, you know, they may have had a couple of different jobs, um, and, but still find themselves really under attached to the labor market. Um, so we're really um, creating this um, space in the pathway to bridge two careers. Um, and, and really think about that advancement um, process and um, thinking about um, you know, the retention along the pathway um, in terms of being at Tulane for a year um, in, in a job that's you know, much higher than minimum wage um, that involves this scaffolded kind of process of learning outcomes and benchmarks um, that our participants are um, building upon um, and so we, um, you know, hold our participants accountable. We also hold our employer partners accountable um, to providing those experiences. We think that, um, you know, absolutely in any job, um, there is an element of, of downtime and what you do with that downtime, um, particularly in the trades, a lot of the supervisors that we work with, they themselves have gone through apprenticeship programs and um, really testify that some of their most, um, you know, 
informative experiences were when there wasn't work to be doing, um, they learned that you picked up the broom and you, you know, contributed in that way. And so um, certainly there is an element of downtime, but we really hold um, our supervisors accountable to creating project work um, and, and really creating progressive learning experiences so that we're ensuring that growth. Great. And Tammy, uh, your supervisor, you know, what, is there anything in particular that you think, um, you know, that you sort of train them to do to create a quality experience? So that was another benefit that I did not expect. There has been like a revitalization to our supervisors and our, our more senior craftsmen mm -hmm. that have the opportunity to work with the apprentices and then doing that mentoring. Um, I, we really never expected, and all the employers are, are seeing that they, they get a chance to transfer that knowledge, and that's those skills and those trades to these really eager um, students that you know they come in every day and and they just have this energy that that just transposes the whole environment but um, we have had some questions with our trainers how do I treat the student apprentice versus that I'm training versus how I would treat a new incoming employee um, you know are, are we holding their hands more are they subjected to the to the to the same you know um, our harsh reality that we would any other trainee. So what we've um, we've got a lot of support in in our state, and I've called on other companies that have been doing it a lot longer than us. And um, one of the um, suggestions is a train the trainer course for these mentors. So that's what we're doing in our, our business. Great. So we are going to talk briefly about uh, additional actions that employers and practitioners can take to expand access uh, to youth uh, for jobs or early work experience. Tammy, um, you've been instrumental in designing and implementing your apprenticeship partners program. What are your employer partners telling you that they find most valuable? Um, you know, many of our employers haven't been connected to the schools in the past. You know, we're all busy making our, our products and selling or making our businesses profitable and hadn't really looked at the schools as um, a resource for, for future jobs. So that connection has been vital. I had no idea that the CTE classes had metal cutting courses, which I, you know, about 100% of my job, or 80% of my jobs are CNC machinists, and that there are students that are being sent to these Skills USA um, and ranking in the nation, and I never would have been connected to those students. So um, that connection has been um, vital that we're finding them, and then also the businesses have been able to give back. Um, there was a student that needed some specific tools to complete a certification in, in high school, so the businesses are donating these tools and um, trying you know, to bring in money into these programs because it's a win-win for both. Okay. And um, Amy, what else do you think practitioners and employers could or should be doing to ex expand that access? Sure. Um, I would definitely reiterate the partnership aspect with both schools and then also CBOs um, for the brokerage, for um, the post-hire supports mm -hmm. as well. Um, I would say that when we think about um, employer engagement, we really think about um, in some ways, it's a similar approach that we um, use to cultivating donors. So we really think about what are the low stakes ways that we can um, really invest them in what we're doing. So you know, first we think about bringing them into our program to um, you know serve as a mentor for a day, um, do kind of a, a networking or mock interview day really see our participants in action. Um, those are usually the days that are most transformative to our participants. Um, exposure is just, I, I don't think we can talk enough about um, kind of the value of exposure. Um, and then it also, I think 
hooks employers um, to really see, wow, they're doing something interesting here. Um, these young people are you know, learning and could be real assets to um, our company um, and really creates that relationship from there. So I think that's just so important. Um, I also think just, you know, where possible, being flexible around um, young people's need to um, progressively develop and, you know, get um, an education um, and, and other kinds of training. So thinking about being able to accommodate those schedules. Um, we've already talked about um, really employers examining their own hiring practices and policies um, around drug testing, around criminal records. Um, and then um, we've also talked about thinking about um, not only hiring people, but really having a focus on um, retention and, and advancement as well. Okay, thank you. Uh, we don't want to forget about the role for government and policy. Um, so very quickly, Keisha, uh, what are some existing policies or policy changes and updates that you think can help improve the quality of youth employment? Oh, that's a lot. I I'll know. Be, I'll be quick so we can get We've, the audience uh, questions. Um, uh, one of the things that I think is really important, I think um, that Paul started our talk about this, is when we when we had kind of kind of a full employment kind of uh, mm -hmm. situation. And so, one, we've seen a divestment of um, funding at the federal level. And so, one of the ways we can really commit is to fully fund our existing programs. Um, we're part of another an effort about reconnecting one million opportunity youth, and so that provides a roadmap for that uh, with Civic Enterprises, um, Youth Build USA, Jobs for Future Forum for Youth Investment. Another thing I think is really important, again, we heard it from LaShawn's story, but this is a story of many of our young people, is how do we think about justice reform, juvenile justice, criminal justice reform, in a way that makes employment and work at the center of, an, of, of creating opportunities. And so that involves thinking about band of box, but other beyond band of box strategies. Um, employer incentives. I mean, I'm so thrilled to be here, and this is just an employer, you know, partnership that came together without much, without any government incentives. But we know that that's not the case for many other folks. So, um, you know, whether it's the work opportunity tax credit for disconnected youth or other types of employer um, incentives that we could, could really think about. I'll stop there because I could go on and on and on, but we reference career and technical education, thinking about career academies, um, as well as um, uh, we have an opportunity to think about higher education reauthorization and um, Pell re restoration, as well as thinking about the role of work study and think with young people in early work experience if they're in post-secondary. Paul, uh, same question. Uh, what are some, some key policy or co policy changes that you think can improve yeah, the quality? I, I, I think teen labor markets are, are local. Um, okay. And and so what that means is is I, I, so a couple of years ago we interviewed a couple hundred employers up in Massachusetts and down in Philadelphia, and um, and and we found actually a lot of the employers were actually quite willing to work with the high school, but they couldn't find anyone at the high schools willing to work with them. That there was a tremendous disconnect there outside of the career tech system. Career tech system is a different different deal. But it's a pretty small part of the pretty pretty small part of the uh, of the secondary system. And so to me, trying to figure out how I, how I recognize the role, how we get policy to recognize the role of early work experience and provide some kind of brokering function for kids to get them jobs while they're in high school. And mostly unsubsidized jobs. You know, I think, I think that if we, you know, the, the, the unemployment rate is now under 5%, the chances of things getting better for kids I think is up a lot. 
so it seems to me that trying to put that, you know, trying to support job developers and other kind of people who certify teens and young adults for jobs, I think would make a, a huge difference. I've certainly spent my career at two universities that kids pay a lot of money to, uh, who are cooperative education institutions for that exactly that kind of brokering function. Melanie, can I just add what something that he said about it being on a community level? So our community foundation houses the Triad Workforce Solutions Collaborative, which is a national fund um, workforce site, and they're the ones that kind of introduced the employers in our um, in our state to other employers, and you know they were kind of like the glue. Um, and they, they knew who, who to go to to the schools. They knew who the director of the CTE program was. They knew who, you know, so employers don't have those connections. You know, they're not, they're not in the system. So um, the community has a huge opportunity of, of just kind of brokering and being the glue for, the, for these advancements in youth. Okay, we are gonna transition now. Um, audience, I will be, we will be taking your questions um, in a bit. And. Uh, for those of you watching live stream, you can tweet your questions to hashtag TalkGoodJobs. That's hashtag TalkGoodJobs. Or you can text your questions to 202-802-6447. That's So Opportunity Youth United is a grassroots, grassroots movement led by young people from local communities. It started off uh, sort of as a coalition of 16 national nonprofits that serve Opportunity Youth, including Youth Build, Public Allies, The Core Network, Gateway to College, Year Up, and a number of others, who, once the data was revealed, like I said, when we dug down to the data and it was revealed that there were 6 million Opportunity Youth in America, you feel realized we only serve 10,000 a year, we can't do this alone, so we need to come together. And we need to have young people at the center of it. So these young people have created a set of policy recommendations um, to reconnect um, one million young people a year. We're building this grassroots movement, we're creating community action teams, we're organizing um, local organizations and communities, building a spirit of civic engagement in these communities, uh, and addressing the conditions of poverty, because when you talk about quality education, um, employment, violence in the community, civic engagement is sort of core to that. So we're trying to build and empower our young people uh, to take that on. Okay, great. Well, we're gonna move to questions from the audience. There will be someone walking around with a microphone. Do you want to? There'll be a Hi, I'm Emma Human with the Forum for Community Solutions here at Aspen, and thrilled to be supporting this uh, panel, and thank you so much. Um, this is actually a follow-up to what LaShawn just said, and I was hoping it's a leading question, uh, but LaShawn and Amy, you could talk about the importance of engaging youth themselves in developing the solutions to this challenge, and also, LaShawn, if you could speak uh, to the work that you and Opportunity Youth United are doing with the 100,000 Opportunities Employer Coalition. 
Thanks. Absolutely. So that's yeah. that. <laughs> um, so when it comes to this topic, the young people are the experts, right? They're the ones that are directly impacted by these issues, and they could tell you these issues inside and out. Uh, so with 100K, we've, we've done just that. We've had these courageous leaders and these corporations come together and say, hey, we want to place to offer these young people jobs. And they were also uh, transparent about, you know, how do we do this, right? So we, Opportunity Youth United, has worked um, to put young people in front of them. Uh, we've had roundtable discussions. We have panels where the CEOs and presidents, not just their, their staff, the CEO and presidents of these um, major corporations are meeting with these young people, getting an understanding of what their experience is like um, and the impact of unemployment is for them. Um, and again, it, it, puts, it puts a face to the story because at that level, they don't really interact with uh, our young people as much as possible, so it's easier for them to empathize. Uh, so we've, we've definitely um, enjoyed th that experience. <laughs> Um, so, inspired by the great work of LaShawn and, and Jamil Alexander and um, so many other incredible youth leaders, um, also Ryan Dalton in my own community in New Orleans, um, we launched um, just this past June um, New Orleans version of a community action team, so a community-based um, body of, of young people um, to really carry out this work um, at a local level. Um, employees' mission specifically is um, worded that um, we're addressing youth disconnection with young people. Um, so youth are um, part of our collaborative of um, 50 people total. Um, they attend all of our meetings. They're on our different working groups. Um, and then one of the um, five pillars of the Employee Collaborative is youth voice and youth engagement and cultivating that explicitly. Um, so we've uh, developed within our community action team, which we call our youth action team um, in New Orleans, have developed a, a, a leadership program um, with this inaugural um, group of nine founding members um, who are representing a whole host of different organizations around the city. So they've participated in various programs around the city um, and are at this point really focused on um, just making young people aware of the different opportunities exactly to your point. Like how do you navigate um, where, the, where the right program for me or which programs are even out there. Um, so that's one of their major charges um, and then they're also really critical to um, the design of our 100,000 Opportunities um, launch event, which will take place in March, um, and really are doing so from the perspective, again, of helping young people navigate the employment supports, the post-secondary supports, and other things like that. I would just have to echo, our apprentices are the best marketing material that we could have. If we can get an uh, apprentice in front of other students to talk about their own personal experiences and how they got in the program and, and what you can do now if you're in ninth grade so you can be ready to be in a junior, they are just fabulous. And they really have taken to it. Um, I, I see in the next two or three years, I'm not even going to all the high schools anymore, but the apprentice is doing it on their own. Um, they've also sat on panels and discussions with me and um, just... They have a different perspective um, that they bring, and it's, it's very refreshing, and it, it's really, they sell it better than anybody can. 
Can I just add one more thing about this? Specifically about why civic engagement is important, because we talked about what it looks like. But it's the only way these young people are going to be taken seriously, uh, because a lot of times while their issues are ignored, because you know these 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 representatives don't feel the pressure coming from these young people, right? So the youth, yeah, civic engagement among youth is low, and then when you talk about youth from local communities, it's even lower. Uh, so it's easy to sort of ignore them and they fall them by the wayside, and we're seeing the implications. Uh, but the only way for them to be taken seriously. People need to know that uh, these youth are going to come out. They're, they're going to speak. They're informed and they're educated, um, and they're going to hold you accountable. I think that's the big thing: is um, teaching these young people that if you want to see change, it has to come from the community. And this one representative, you can't just pass the torch to say, figure out all our problems. You just need to be there, hold that, help, inform, and educate that person, and also hold them accountable. I'm moving forward, especially uh, for the important elections coming up in 2017 and 2018. We're not trying to insert ourselves into the conversation. We want to be a part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. Great. I'm going to move to a question from our, uh, from someone tweeted this question, and then I will move to you. Uh, so the question is, how can nonprofits and work specialists nudge high schools to work closer with local employers? This is from William Nix. Uh, yeah, and, and how, how can we overcome legal barriers? The, the, I mean, it's a simple answer. I mean, the, the, the high schools, the, the elected officials in the high schools have to sort of agree to do this. Okay. And it needs to be made a priority. High schools are reluctant to do this because so much of the way they're judged now is on basic skill tests that it's hard for them to kind of divert their resources um, out of that. Yeah. So, you know, um, I, I, you know, it's, I, I'm going to get this wrong, but this is a biblical quote, as you judge, so shall you be judged. And, you know, we're probably not judging by the, you know, probably not judging high schools maybe in the best way that we, uh, we could. Hi, Francisco Alvarez with the Roosevelt Institute, um, but my comments are my own. Um, I'm approaching this conversation more looking at uh, young workers leaving post-secondary education, whether it's technical school or college, going to the job force. Um, there are two, I'm going to say two competitive narratives out there. On the one hand, there's the skills gap narrative. You have people, especially in the Silicon Valley crowd, who say, well, the, our problem with our labor force is we just don't have enough coders and programmers. We need colleges to teach more young people to do that. And on the other hand, there's the argument that uh, the jobs are, are just not there. Uh, that the manufacturing, all these jobs, the high quality, high paying jobs have left America. I'm not very partial towards that second narrative because what we're really seeing is that in the United States, uh, yes, we're seeing low-skilled or, or um, less sophisticated manufacturing jobs be exported, but we're seeing high-value, uh, higher-skilled manufacturing jobs coming into the U.S., including value chains from Mexico coming into the U.S. But in the skills, and then on the skills gap side. I, I think that's a misreading of history. I don't think that there ever was a time where uh, the American labor force was completely suited to meet the needs of the economy at any one time. And logically, I'm also saying that I think um, a lot of employers are less willing to train people coming out of post-secondary education are really counting on colleges and technical schools to train people, to equip, to equip them with the skills 
that they need to work for them. So essentially, they're shifting that training cost to the schools. So how do you respond to either of those narratives? Um, what do you think about that skills gap? What do you think about the need to actually put more onus on the employers themselves to train these young people who, by all other measures, are qualified for these jobs? They just you know, need someone to help them get those jobs specific to those roles. Thank you. Well, I'll start. Yeah, I'll just I'll start. Um, I think it was already echoed here, but um, to answer your question, it's local. It has to be driven locally. And so um, many of the community we work with about twenty or so communities around the country, and the how they find out who their what their industries are. Example in Miami Dade County, they have seven key industries, but it was all by their labor market information. And again, thinking about their workforce development boards as a key partner of all of this. And also, in some of those places, they found that it was a skills gap because they had a large number of young adults who, um, in particular communities, were without post-secondary, and they were out without even a high school uh, credential. But again, it's understanding that data. And in other places, it was um, low-wage work, and that leads to a different type of policy intervention that we didn't talk about, which is about job quality and which is about progressive you know, career change, with, whether within that industry or across industries. And so their approach has been some of what we've already heard, employer partnerships, school partnerships, um, led by the mayor and the, and the, and the county uh, commissioners in, in terms of um, pushing people to come together. So I don't think it's either or. I think it depends on what the local data say. I don't know if you have any more to add to that, um, Paul. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say part of it is it depends on the business cycle. You know, uh, I, I, you know, five years ago, six years ago, I went to this ridiculous meeting and they, they had these people in the room talking about the skills gap and middle skill shortages. And the ratio of unemployed to vacant jobs in the United States was seven to one. So there are no shortages. There's just a job deficit. And, and now as we've kind of moved towards full employment, the unemployment rate's down towards 4.9% in the nation. What you'll see is, is there'll be a geography to that. So if you go up to Massachusetts, the unemployment rate will be three and a half to a point. Maybe it's a little bit more local. And a lot of that is actually, if you get to the greater Boston area, it's probably a little bit lower. You know, you go to Philadelphia, the unemployment rate's still over six. and still, you know, a lot of slack out there. So what it means is that you do get spot labor market shortages. The problem for the education and training system and for young people that are making decisions is, is that when you make the decision and when the labor demand will be there is, is a temporal matter. So when you're in the machine trades, it takes three, four, five years to become a machinist or a, a, a tool and die maker is seven or eight years. And the problem is, is that if that's an industry where labor demand is in a long-term decline, but short-term cycle bumps it up, you may be missing your bet, okay? And so, so and, and you gotta remember, that's what every person out there is. They're an investor making a bet, and the better informed they are about that, the better off they're gonna be. And that's why you've seen in the last four or five years, we've had some bad bets, and we've had a lot of what I call malemployed college grads. We still have that problem now. So um, I'm gonna take another question from our online um, audience, and then I'll move to you all. How do schools and training programs ensure that the jobs they are preparing kids for are valued in the labor market? So there's kind of the onus on schools. How do they convince, how do they convince you that so I think the employer is the consumer. You know, we're the ones that are going to be doing the hiring, and so they do need to work together. Um, to your point, I think um, I've, I've heard, I've read in psychology that um, a, 
a kindergartner or a first grader rules out in their mind what they can and they can't do in, 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 in kindergarten and first grade um, versus I'm not good in, in math, so I can't do this job, or I'm a girl, and so that's a boy's job. And so I think if the employers in the community that will have the jobs when they get ready to graduate go in at that age and, ex and explore with the students what the jobs are that are going to be available when they graduate. And then in eighth grade, they go and they visit the, all those communities have the job sectors, you know, whether ours is advanced manufacturing and, and healthcare, and you get to go and you, and you get to see these jobs in action where maybe you weren't exposed to them before. And then by ninth and 10th grade, maybe you get to do a job shadow or a week-long internship. And then when you're a junior or a senior, you know, okay, I need a four-year degree to deal with the job that I really want to do because I, I really want this. I've explored. I've had opportunities to see that. Or I'm going to do an apprenticeship, and I know this is the kind of apprenticeship that I want to, to, that I want to follow. So I think if we educate um, our students younger and the employers are taking an active role and the schools are working with us to do that, then it's a win. I just wanted to add to that. I think that, um, you know, I echo those points. And in addition, um, I mean, I think that the the best case scenario is, especially if you're approaching this locally or regionally, is that your employers are really informing your training programs with you. And so, um, again, they're bought in from the start. They really see what you're doing um, in some ways as, as free training for um, that industry. And you know, something that you said, Tammy, earlier really resonated with um, my own our own experience down in New Orleans, um, just um, in this idea that our employer partners at Tulane and um, within the community um, have really taken an approach to um, kind of wanting to see their um, industry live on um, and really think about um, not just training for their own program, but what's really valued in this industry and sector in general. And so um, we've been really, um, we couldn't do the work that we've done without informing this program um, from a demand perspective really from from the very beginning. But when you, if, if you are trying to um, pull in a, a new employer, let's mm -hmm. say, mm -hmm. an employer that's not that familiar with your program, mm -hmm. I'm just can one of you answer, how do you, how do you convince them? I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a sales pitch, right? I mean, do you give them a sheet of facts and figures about the success of your program? Do you let them come walk through your facility to see young people at work? Yeah. I, I think that might be part of what this person was yeah. asking. All of the above. Oh. So, yep, okay. so we, um, and, and that sort of, this relates to what I was um, trying to articulate probably poorly earlier, but again, we really um, take this approach just like we would in cultivating a relationship with the donor. And so it's really, um, you know, first, it's obviously kind of our, <laughs> our pitch. Ideally, that pitch would be brokered by um, one of their competitors or someone who can really vouch for us. Um, one of our Tulane supervisor partners. So, you know, someone in their um, network within the industry to, to vouch for what we're doing. Um, and then we meet with them, but then we really bring them um, to the program. Just like you said, the young people that we work with, um, you know, are, are um, the face of the program and um, the beacons of success of the program. I mean, they, um, are and and so are our employer our Tulane employer partners like they can really speak to the challenges and the successes in a way that's much more credible than I can I want to speak to what schools can do and also to this gentleman back there's um, response to how 
the pushback that there's not enough jobs there. Um, but I think in these conversations, what OIU has done, we've created a, um, a section in our recommendations called Upward Mobility to have the conversation be about how can we fill the job, but also add in how can we um, create more jobs in the community, prepare these young people to not fill a job, but to create more jobs in the community. Um, because we don't want to just train out these young people or respond to demand data because that's reactive, right? We want young people, and who's to say they want to work for the next person? So I think part of the long haul is to have schools and programs teaching these, these young people entrepreneurial skills, mm -hmm. right? Um, that they already have in informal markets, but marginalizing that. So that, again, that they can create their own businesses and create jobs in the community. And then employers, they can still meet those jobs. And when they're in entry-level jobs, employers have to be intentional about, you're in this position, although you're flipping burgers, here's what this looks like in your long-term plan. Because again, we are young people. We're not trying to build an army to fill <laughs> these jobs because it's on demand, right? And then that factory sh shuts down, then they left back on the bottom. We want them to get the job that they need, to get the skills, the training that they need to possibly be managers of their own businesses. But again, I think we need to really uplift entrepreneurs because, it, I mean, this is a challenge not for just youth in America, it's for youth across the globe. It's like, we don't have jobs for them, so why can't they create their own and use the passion Use their passion. For instance, I'm part of a group now where we're trying to where we're trying to legitimize that we have these community organizers. Like, how do we professionalize that and have them do a job that they that they're really passionate about, right? Mm -hmm. So, in a sense, that's entrepreneurship um, in itself. Taking your passion um, and making a good living off of it. So, again, just the, how can we fill these jobs? Just add in how can we create job makers. <laughs> I'm Monica Herc with the Committee for Economic Development of the Conference Board, and we're working on a project with employers around competency-based hiring. And the idea of that is that employers should be looking at skills and abilities that um, people have, including opportunity youth, and looking beyond the resume. So to the extent that employers can assess that um, early on and look beyond the resume, um, that that will be helpful to everyone. So I was just curious about the panel's um, reactions or thoughts if that's part of the solution to Opportunity Youth. Yeah, I'll, I'll just mention um, it's not a study that we did, but I, absolutely, um, uh, Child Trends and FHI 360 actually looked at work with employers and programs from across the globe. Again, this is a global issue as well, and um, some of those core early work skills, early competency skills, um, uh, uh, power skills uh, were what they looked at, and those were the things that help young people to persist and to, to continue on a job more so than anything that was in their background. So I think that will go a long way um, in terms of changing uh, human resources and hiring practices. And just one other point, you mentioned um, meeting with CEOs, and what we've, what we've heard from our communities that, that we work with is that, that that is a great thing to do because, you know, setting the, the tone at the top is important, but at the hiring manager level, how do we make sure they have those kind of tools? I know uh, Rockefeller Foundation was doing work around knack. Like, what do you have a knack for? Um, and, 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 and that is actually bringing out the innate abilities um, that young people already have and what they're, and predicting what they will be likely be successful. So I think that will go a long way for our field. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. I just, I just want to say one more thing. I just want to get a plug in here for the Wall Street Journal. My colleagues on the economics team do great work 
you should check out our website if you haven't already. We have a blog, it's called Real Time Economics, and we write about a lot of these issues. So um, I really encourage you to, to read up on our website about some of them. Great. Well, I just want to ask everybody to give our panel a big round of applause. Thank you all so much. I will second the plug for the Wall Street Journal and also ask you all to come back and enjoy and join us again for more in our Working in America series. We'll be continuing again next year in 2017. So thank you all so much for coming back. <laughs>